Welcome back to the True Canacast. This episode, as you can tell from the title, is about growing outdoors. Before we get started, I just want to give a big special shout out to Iron Distribution. If you go online, you can find them under ironion-distribution.com. These guys are the UK and European distributors for Dragonfly Earth Medicine soil amendments. These are incredible amendments and the beauty of Dragonfly Earth Medicine is they really promote self-sufficiency. So all the products that they sell, you can actually learn from them how to produce them yourself so that you could actually grow all of these products and produce them for yourself and uh, have total self-sufficiency. So these guys are incredible and their products are outstanding. There's a bunch of different things from them, fat flowers, radiant green, lush roots, the natural mystic and brilliant black, all amazing products. As a foliar, the natural mystic is incredible. I've never had something smell so appealing. You feel like having a shower in it yourself. It smells so good and works incredibly well, uh, especially uh, considering how gentle it is to the plants. The level of effectiveness of this product is incredible. So yeah, definitely look into this. If you're a soil grower, organic grower, if you're growing indoors, if you're especially growing outdoors, definitely check these products out. Amazing people great bunch. If you would like to find out more about Dragonfly Earth Medicine, their Instagram is Dragonfly Earth Medicine, all one word, and you can check out their website, which is DEMPurefarms.com. That's DEMPurefarms.com. And the DEMPurefarms is all one word, .com. Uh, And once again, it's Ion, I-O-N, distribution.com for all your EU and UK requirements for the Dragonfly Earth Medicine soil amendments. Be sure to check those guys out. And also on Instagram, you can check out Iron Distribution at Iron underscore UK underscore. And I'll put all the links for Dragonfly Earth Medicine and Iron Distribution in the notes and the post I make on Instagram for this episode. So give all of those guys a little look and uh, I'm sure you'll be able to find something special to add to your garden. Another company that we've got to give a lot of love and thanks to are the Hydroponic Moonshine guys. These guys have got three amazing products and I'm a big fan of all of them. To start off with, there's the Moonshine Bioconcentrate, which is an IPM product to fight all those pesky bugs and critters that want to trouble your flowers. I used this product to bring in some cuttings that I had outdoors this year. I uh, obviously quarantined them, but I treated with the Moonshine Bioconcentrate a few times and 
cleaned them up beautifully. Never had any issues of any bugs. So I can attest to that being an excellent product. Then of course, there's the uh, Moonshine Nutrient Enhancer. I've been using this for several years now and I love it. Goes in with your regular feeding schedule and you can see the difference in plants. So definitely worth checking that one out. And then last but not least, which I used a lot on my outdoor crop was the Sunshine Concentrate. The Moonshine Sunshine Concentrate, that's a bit of a mouthful, but yeah, the Moonshine Sunshine Concentrate is excellent. You really see the plants uh, like that. I would go out just as the sun was starting to come up, hit the plants with a little foliar spray of that throughout veg, and you could see the plants just perk up and start praying and really, really happy. So yeah, definitely one to check out. Their Instagram is Moonshine Global, so you can check those guys out there. Another thing that I'd like to talk about is a soil that these guys promote. Uh, it is called Big Roots All-Purpose Potting Soil. I was very lucky to get a bag of that sent over to me for last season's outdoor. I filled up a nice big pot and put one of my grape lemonade S1s in there and the plant grew to perfection. I couldn't have been happier. It was such a good soil. All I did was literally feed water and the nutrient enhancer from uh, moonshine. So with those two combined, I got outstanding results. I was super worried about the plants uh, not having enough nutrient, but everything went perfect and the plant yellowed out at exactly the right time and was flushed to perfection. Super ripe looking plant, all yellowed out, smoked beautifully. So massive, massive thanks to the guys for getting me a bag of that soil out. I'm definitely a big fan of it. Made life super easy and gave me incredible results. So yeah, I got a lot of uh, love for the guys and for that product. So definitely check out their Instagram, which is Moonshine shine global all one word and you can see more about the big root soil and their other products as always we give a big shout out to tresor barcelona if you're in barcelona make sure you check out tresor bcn one of the best clubs in town and very good friends of us so yep always a wonderful reception from the people there Always lots of uh, true canogenetics on the menu available for the members. So it's uh, definitely something worth checking out if you're in town. Give me a shout and I can always help you with membership. By far my favorite addition to the Trestle family has been their new little buddy Simba, who they got a year ago now. He's a little Boston Terrier pup. And our owner recently got him. So yeah, it's always good to pass by there and catch up with everyone. But it's even more fun now that they've got their own little resident dog who's there to greet everyone and super friendly little dude. So yeah, make sure that you say hello to Simba when you pass by Trestle. Last but not least, a big shout out to the plug, the plug seed bank, the plug Barcelona, plug records and the entire plug empire. If you're interested in getting yourself some runts and you want to runts up your life, then check out the new drop from the Plug Seed Bank, which is a runts S1. They've called it Fruit Drops. This is sure to be a very special one. You can't go wrong when you get one of the elites and do some S1s. 
the perfect opportunity for those of you that can't get your hands on cuts or don't want to risk the hassle of getting cuts with diseases or bugs. This is an opportunity for you to hunt through some runts S1s and find your own unique keeper with your own little uh, twist on it based on your own selection. So definitely check that one out. Available from all good seed retailers. That's the Runts S1, which is called Fruit Drops from Plug Seed Bank. Lots of love to the whole team over there. Before we get this episode started, I want to first say I am by no means an expert when it comes to outdoor growing. To be honest with you, I don't really consider myself an expert at indoor growing, let alone outdoor growing. But my point is I do not have anywhere near the experience with growing outdoors that I do with growing indoors. As you can imagine, in England, the opportunity to grow outdoors is few and far between with any great success. And when I was living in England, I was uh, too busy doing other things to even really think much about growing outdoors over there. But saying that, my first ever plant that I grew was an outdoor plant in the UK. And it probably yielded no more than maybe seven 10 grams at a push but my god that 10 grams of bud it inspired me so much and made me realize if i could not even make any effort and with very little knowledge get a plant to produce something that smoked that good then what what was possible if i actually put some effort and did some investigating and actually learned something and put put the time in to do it properly so yeah that was a that was a big eye opener for me so yeah i did have that one little experience when i was probably in my teens to be honest with you that was there uh, before i ever put a light indoors so yeah i do have a little bit of experience outdoors in the uk but other than that there was none really and it wasn't until I moved to Spain that I was able to utilize the good weather here and actually experience proper outdoor growing so it's been a learning curve since I got here and I'm forever learning and forever getting stung by new little things that come along and trip you up so it takes a lot but my god it's rewarding venture and is probably my favorite thing to do is to grow outdoors when you've got all the things that you need to get it right, then it's a joy to do. And there's nothing more tranquil and more peaceful and beautiful than waking up with the sun, walking the dogs and then coming back and watering the plants just as they're getting their first little peak of sunlight. So yeah, I've, I've really loved the outdoor growing adventure. I've definitely fallen in love with it, but there has been some trials and tribulations that have made it very difficult. So I will tell you about a lot of those now. And I decided that in advance that this would be titled part one of outdoor growing because it's such an extensive subject that we really do need to split it up into several episodes. So not 
just my own input, but I will get other people to come on and put their input because there are a lot of people with a lot more knowledge than me. And one of the things that I learned very early in life is find people smarter than yourself because you can't know everything about everything. And sometimes you got to be humble and find people a lot smarter than yourself and ask them all the questions and show a little humility and uh, be prepared to learn some things and correct some mistakes you've made. So I'm always checking up on what I should be doing and bouncing ideas off of people with a lot more experience than myself growing outdoors, people that are more experienced with organic growing, living soil, ferments, teas, and the whole essence that kind of goes with outdoor growing and organic growing. To start with, I think the perfect place is to talk about genetics because when it comes to growing outdoors, the choice of genetics is something that's super important. A lot of people don't give it uh, enough attention and end up getting caught out with plants that just aren't suitable for growing outdoors. One of the big factors that I realized quick is that plants with a low leaf to bud ratio are much better outdoors because what you find is the leafier plants seem to be a little bit more prone to getting powder and mildew later on in the season. And powder and mildew is one of the biggest issues that you deal with as an outdoor grower. What I found is that if you've got plants that are over leafy, it gives more opportunity for just even morning dew that little bit of moisture from when the sun comes up, just little things like that that can build up and not only cause uh, powdery mildew, but also cause bud rot as well later on in flower. So yeah, you really need to be careful about uh, picking plants that are suitable for outdoors and powdery mildew resistance is one of the most important. Another, I would say, is a strong plant. You can't be picking genetics where it's flimsy plants. So I know there's like a lot of strains that are more viney and a little bit more weaker that don't quite have the strength in them. And those kind of genetics just won't survive as well outdoors. You need something that's got some uh, nice thick stems helps. And uh, yeah, you need to really find something that for me personally, what I realized is that there was always a bad period of weather, which would occur at the end of September. And this could cause a lot of problems with plants. So what I gradually learned to do is get plants that finish just before that end of September and then other plants that finish later on into October, but are more sativa dominant so that when it goes through that rough period they're resistant and they don't get issues caused by the rain and shitty weather that happens at the end of september beginning of october because what seems to always happen is there's two bad weeks of weather and then it comes back real nice and plants finish off wicked throughout the end of october and even into november if you've got plants that are resistant to powder and mildew so for me, I had excellent results with not only my chocolate tie hybrids like the chocolate pineapple and the Brittany, but also the Filipino hybrids. So the true love and also the blood lemons, which I did this year, which is grape lemonade reversed to the Filipino and these strains because they 
don't pack on weight until later on and they have a good leaf to bud ratio it helps with their resistance to powdery mildew so they really done well this year uh, what i decided is i was going to put some hash makers out that would finish uh late september at the latest so that they missed a horrible period and basically i was just kind of keeping an eye on the weather the whole time at the end of september and then on the days that it started to rain i literally just went into overdrive and harvested all of the sticky nicky and a few other things that i had down because the sticky nicky is just an incredible hash maker and yeah it performed excellent and i had some that were finished super quick so i was real happy with that choice and yeah it was definitely the right decision and went towards being one of the best outdoor crops that i've had the other things which came down a little bit later were the filipino hybrids and those done really well outdoor this year one of the things that I made a point of doing this year was trying to start as many seeds as possible to go outdoors rather than cuttings because what I've found is that the taproot that seeds have allows for a much bigger, healthier and better acclimatized plant to the outdoor conditions and the results from seeds as opposed to clones are a lot better in my opinion. I think it's possible to find with the right selection to find a clone that performs exceptionally well and can give good results but overall if you have reliable solid genetics to choose from then i would definitely recommend uh, picking seeds over clones to grow outdoors i did both this year i did both what i done is in the ground i did seedlings uh, mostly with just a few cuttings on the edge of the garden and those cuttings performed excellent. I was real happy with those. And I also had uh, a bunch of uh, seedlings and a few cuts on the rooftop. But to be honest with you, the seedlings outperformed most of the cuttings because it was towards the end of my problems with the hot plate and viroid so a lot of the cuttings that i put outside i'm almost certain had the hot plate and viroid some of them i'm not sure if they had it or if the uv from the sun helped battle it but there were actually exceptional results outdoors in comparison to my indoor results with the infected plants so i think that's a testament to what the sun and a good soil bed can do for a plant and how it can hide the hot plate and viroid from someone if they're really happy so yeah it's uh, something to be aware of and to keep an eye on if you have got cuts with potential issues that a very healthy soil and some uv can often hide the real issue from you and stop you from diagnosing it correctly so yeah that was the one of the things that i noticed but like i say overall i definitely recommend uh, seedlings and if you've got to grow something uh, from regular seeds and you want to save yourself a lot of hassle, then I would advise you to start them indoors, take cuttings, sex them like the cuttings themselves. And once you sex the cuttings themselves, then you can make a decision what plants you want to plant outside and actually use soil and put into beds or into pots or whatever it is your plan is to do with them i myself as a general rule try to use my 
female seeds to grow outdoors because it's just a lot less stress from uh, selecting the males and p- picking them out. Uh, obviously, feminized seeds can have issues sometimes. And some of the ones that I've made that have had slight sensitivity issues indoors that I haven't released, I save all of those fems and grow them outdoors because of what I found for whatever reason, some feminized seeds, and I guess it's a case of any seeds that are sensitive, although they may get super sensitive indoors for whatever reason, when grown outdoors, they don't seem to have the same issues and don't have any hermaphrodite tendencies. So I, I make use of a lot of my seeds that have not passed the mark as far as quality control indoors, but are able to produce a wonderful harvest outdoors. So that's often what I do, but there's other times when I've uh, started plants and then taken cuts, topped them all, sex to cut in, and then that's given me enough of a heads up as to which are females and males so that within a couple of weeks of that being done, I can make a decision what ones to pot outside. So that's always an option if you're growing regular seeds and you don't want to waste a lot of space and time and energy on males being put outside. One of the things people often talk about when it comes to outdoors is auto flowers. And I have had some experience with auto flowers and the breeding is moving in the right direction. And it's quite clear that the levels are raising constantly, but as things stand and as they were, when I last grew auto flowers, unless it's the only option and you want to grow something when it's not possible to grow regular photo period plants, then I think there are good options out there but you really need to do your homework and find the real deal breeders of auto flowers and not just go to the companies that are doing the fancy branding and they're just buying them in bulk because you will get hit and miss results from those ones. What you need to do is check out someone like Seeds here now. They've got a Mephisto Genetics, I believe he's called, something like that. And he has got some incredible things based on the feedback that I've heard from people and some of the photos I've seen. So it is possible to be done, but it seems like there's a lot of lazy seed makers just doing bulk seeds and selling them to a bunch of companies who just rebrand them and there are very few actual breeders doing the work themselves but if you're lucky enough to find a breeder that you can uh, see is putting in the work and doing the real research and breeding then auto flowers do have a place for me personally if i want to grow something early on in the season i would prefer to do some light depth simple light depth, nothing crazy, just a couple of plants that every evening around six o'clock, five, six o'clock, you would pull indoors into a dark room. I just use a bedroom with the lights down, throw the plant in there. And then when it gets to like 11 o'clock at night and the sun's gone down and it's pitch black outside, then you drag the plant back outside and then it gets its 12 hours worth of dark because the sun won't be up till five or six the next morning. So that's, that's the gist of how I do it. It's a, a bit laborious and you've got to be home every day at the right time to be doing it. But I've had incredible results. Probably the best outdoor results I've had have been when I had three 
like 25 liter pots that had cuttings in them, not even seedlings, they were cuttings. And I was able to train them real good and then get them flowering right in the middle of summer. So they were in their flowering period when the sun was at its strongest and they thrived. I had incredible results. And once a good trim job was done on it, you could have easily passed it off to anyone as indoor grown. It was just incredible, beautiful flower. The resin was so juicy, like real big fat glistening resin on it. And the turp profile was incredible because yeah, the sun really does work some magic. And if you can get the plants out in a perfect summer period for that eight or nine weeks of flowering, then a light depth crop can be something truly exceptional. One of the biggest lessons that I've learned is proper planning prevents piss poor performance. And that seems to prove true when it comes to growing outdoors. I, I've been guilty of not making the plans in time and leaving things a little last minute and the crop has suffered from it as as far as having the soil the nutrients the genetics ready it all needs planning you need to think about what you're going to do a month before the season starts even a few months before the season starts do you know what i mean the truth is when your season ends you should be thinking about the next season start starting and you should be thinking about genetics and what you're going to get outside because whether you decide on cuttings or seedlings, I always recommend starting indoors and getting a nice little start. And then that way you're able to get a little head start on nature. So myself personally, for the last season, what I did because I was organized and on time for once was Early on in the year, I started plants indoors, got some nice little seedlings going in soil indoors, got those to a nice stage where I was able to top them, take cuttings from them. And at that stage, they can go outside. So now you've backed up all your genetics and stopped them from being uh, dirty because some things didn't root and I had to bring cuttings back in. But in general, most things were done and rooted safely so once you got a nice little established seedling you can take it outside and when you plant it you haven't got so much fear of bugs and snails and rodents someone's fucking cat or whatever else it is that's out there that might cause problems to a little seedling because honestly the outdoor conditions can easily just destroy some seedlings. It doesn't take long for a few bugs, some ants or something crazy like that to just have a feast and decimate little baby plants. So if you can start a little earlier, uh, seedlings or cuts and get them established and get some nice size on them and get them to harden off a little bit, then those are a lot happier and a lot more successful when it comes to moving them outdoors and starting the outdoor season properly. One of the subjects that someone wanted me to touch on was supplemental lighting for outdoors. And I've got to be honest, I haven't really got much experience with this. So it's not something I can comment on too much. But one thing I will say is that outdoors, a little bit of light bleed from a neighbor's floodlight or street lighting and things like that don't seem to have a massive effect on plants. So when it comes to supplemental lighting, I would imagine you would have to get something quite close to them 
or at least over them directly so that the plants truly register them and realize that they're being given supplemental lighting. This is a subject I'm definitely going to get someone else to come in and speak with me about. I know in Europe, I can't really think of anyone that's doing that supplemental lighting unless they're bringing the plants indoors to give it supplemental lighting. Uh, I'm not sure of anyone over here that's doing greenhouses with supplemental lighting, but I will in the future get a greenhouse grower on who's using supplemental lighting outdoors and get some tips on that subject because I'm quite curious about it myself and I'm sure the results really can be tweaked to quite a high level if you're not only using supplemental lighting to stop the plants from flowering too early for instance because that is one of the issues that I've had previously and I know quite a lot of people had it was a uh, I think it was, was it last year or the year before? I think it might have been the 2020 outdoor season. Everyone in Spain I know had weird issues where plants started to flower early on in the season and then ended up re-vegging. There was some real weird growth from a lot of people. So I think that was where the season just didn't kick off right and the weather wasn't good enough early on. So yeah, it was a strange one and I'm not sure exactly why that happened, but at least two or three friends I know that are growing outdoors in Spain all had the same issues where plants kind of started flowering randomly early when they were small and then started to re-veg. So yeah, I, I think supplemental lighting could definitely help in situations like that when the season isn't quite giving the sunlight hours that you need early enough and you need to extend them to make sure that plants continue to veg. So yeah, it's definitely something I will be investigating further and I'll make sure that we get that information to you as well. When it comes to making the choice of whether plants are going to be potted directly into the ground or grown in pots outdoors, it's quite an interesting one really. Uh, for me, I, I always do both because I have a rooftop terrace which I will always use pots on and then I have a garden where I put plants in the ground. The idea of putting plants in pots down in the garden just seems counterproductive to me because there's a good soil bed there. So for that reason, when it comes to the garden and uh, when the opportunity is always there, I always prefer to plant into the ground. I'm sure there's a lot of benefits to planting in pots, like being able to move things and control things a little bit better, but I really do love plants in the ground. There's something quite special about them and that the lack of uh, limitations to where the roots can actually get to makes for a lot better plants in my opinion. Also, I, I still struggle and it's something that takes a lot of practice is to get the pot size correct for the plants. For me as a cocoa grower moving into soil, and growing outdoors, it's been quite a struggle for me to get my head around how much soil a plant actually needs to grow outside. And there's a lot of factors because when it gets to the heat of summer and things are super hot outside, you not only have the issue where the plants are drinking a lot, but there's a lot of evaporation from the soil as well. So early on when I first started doing outdoor plants, I was having a nightmare with smaller pots where they were drying out too fast. It was uh, killing off the root zone and it was just causing a lot of problems. And 
even a few times I ended up with a fusarium wilt where the plants were getting, the root zone was getting so hot, it was starting to cause the issues. So yeah, over time I've learned that when potting outside, what you have to do is if you're going to grow full-term plants, you need them in big pots. Now there are other reasons to keep plots, plants smaller and me personally, having things out on a rooftop, you only want plants to be a certain height and you want to maintain a small canopy. So for that reason, it can work out quite handy to use smaller pots, but the plants go outside a lot later. If you're going to be growing plants full term in pots and you've got the room and the space and the security to do it, then you need huge pots and you need to make sure that you do a couple of, uh, waterings a day sometimes during the heat of summer just to make sure that things aren't getting uh, too dry and another thing that's super beneficial if you can do it is some kind of top covering so if you can get some hay some straw and you can put that over the top of your pots even in the ground as well that helps massively one of the best things I had this year was a little section of my garden down at the bottom where I was growing tomatoes, melons and a bunch of other plants was straw covering a section of the ground. That made for a much healthier root zone. It, you could just see when you pulled it away how much healthier the, the soil was underneath that. So that's one thing if you can be organized and if you've got access to some hay, if you've got like a stables or something like that locally where you can get some hay from that the horses have been shitting in, uh, the whole shit won't do no harm either. If anything, that's going to benefit the, the plants. So yeah, that's, that's a real big tip I would give everyone is to get some kind of covering even on a smaller scale if you're just growing a couple of plants in pots outdoors I would get a little uh tiny little bay bale of hay you know like the kind of stuff that they do in the pet shops for like rabbit hutches and things like that I would get a couple of those just to cover the tops of the pots and to stop the soil from getting direct sunlight that's one of my top tips and something that while I've done, I haven't been able to get as much hay and straw as I'd like. So I've never quite done it complete and a hundred percent as much as I'd like to. So going forward, that's definitely one of the improvements that I need to make with my outdoor. Over the years, as far as nutrients outdoors, I've tried a variety of things from specific nutrients to just a collection of whatever I've had around and I've had good results with everything to be honest once you're growing in the ground as long as you uh, have decent soil you can't really go too wrong and I've been lucky to get decent results with pretty much anything that I've used that being said when I started to make up properties and feed properly with dragonfly earth medicine that's when I got the best results like I said before I had good results but I had a lot of problems and that's where I noticed the dragonfly earth medicine regime really stood out. Not only are the end results exceptional, but the health of the plants is exceptional. Throughout the whole life, the plants were super healthy and I didn't experience any powder or mildew issues. So that, that, that is a result of a combination of healthy plants, good genetics, and the dragonfly earth medicine regime.
which I think played a big part with the mycorrhizal and other factors. Their foliar spray that I use from them, which is called Natural Mystic, is the most incredible foliar I've ever smelt. It is so delightful. When you're spraying it, you don't mind it coming back on you. It's one of the few times when you can spray plants down and you don't mind getting a spray back from the foliar feed because, yeah, that that hit from that natural mystic, which is a foliar bug spray IPM beneficial type product is just incredible. I can't speak highly enough about that and I'm a true fan of it and always will be. Even if you don't grow organic and you don't have a use for the soil amendments from Dragonfly Earth Medicine, I highly recommend you get some of the natural mystic and give that a try on your plants because yeah, it's a, it's a truly wonderful product and I'm a big fan of that one. Another foliar that I always use is from the hydroponic moonshine guys. Their foliar is incredible. They've also got the bioconcentrate, uh, which is an IPM product. I'm a big fan of that. They got me a bottle of that, which I was very, very lucky to get just in time for bringing some cuts from outdoors to indoors and needing to do a little bit of uh, IPM maintenance. Uh, IPM, for those of you who don't know, is integrated pest management. So IPM just kind of refers to all of the things that you're using for your regime to stop bugs and pests and problems. So that's what we call the IPM, the integrated pest management. So yeah, definitely make sure that you're on top of that. One thing you don't want to do is get stung and have plants that are covered in spider mites. So look for genetics that are resistant. That's always super important. Uh, I really am curious to do some tests with different profile plants to see which ones are attracted by bugs more because I have noticed occasionally I'll get the odd plant that seems to be hit more by bugs than everything else. And I'm wondering if it's not so much what I'm doing as what the the plant is producing and if it's giving off some kind of terpene that's more attractive to the bugs or if the other plants are giving off a terpene that makes them less attractive to the bugs. So I think there's definitely some interesting research that can be done going forward as far as picking plants that are resistant to bugs. One of the things that I really recommend doing, and it's not something I've been able to do every year, but I have noticed a much better result when I have been able to do it, is to use beneficial predators on the outdoor crop. Obviously, you don't want to go out there and just pour a whole bunch of predators into the wind and lose them all. But what you can actually get is you can get the sachets, which you can hang on the plants, and they are slow-release sachets that have got the beneficial predators at like three different stages of their life cycle. So the initial ones will come out and start to look for things to eat and build up a little colony on the plants looking for what predators exist. And as those ones die off when there's nothing else for them to eat, 
the other ones that are at different life stages in the sachets, they start to come out and start to go onto the plant and look for any new bugs that have landed since the last little army went out and done their work. So definitely look into beneficial predators. Copper, if you're familiar with them, are an incredible company. A lot of grow shops uh, sell their products and will get them for you. If you can register a business of some sort with copper and get an account yourselves. I highly recommend you do that and deal with them directly because it makes for a lot quicker process rather than having a middleman who it has to be sent to first. But I can understand that for some people that's a little bit difficult. So I would recommend speaking to your local grow shop and seeing if they can get an account with copper. That's copper, K-O-P-P-E-R-T. And they are, as far as I'm concerned and aware, world leaders in beneficial insects and IPM products in general. So yeah, definitely check them out. I'm a big fan and have been since maybe 2007. Yeah, 2007, 2008, around that time, I think I first become truly familiar with their lineup and utilized it to the max and I've used many bugs from them over the years to deal with a bunch of issues but what we'll do is we'll go into a specific episode that's going to focus on beneficial bugs and other things like that so we will delve much more detail and get someone on with much more knowledge than me because my god there are so many experts out there now and so many wonderful pages that can be followed on instagram and youtube channels so i want to give them a lot more focus and a lot more tension and a lot more credit so in the future expect a specific episode about ipm and beneficial bugs one of the things that I really want to talk about here and is super important is lactobacillus. This is something that I've heard so many people talk about over the years and I've been super lazy. I am so guilty of just being a lazy fuck and not doing this for myself. And it's such a simple process. You literally just get a bag of rice, you soak the rice in water, you rinse off that water into a container. Then you add that water to milk. I think it's like four parts milk to one part water, uh, like the rice wash water. And then you leave that for a few days and whatever scientific explanation it is that occurs, once you go back to that, you have something called lactobacillus. I feel like a fucking idiot even talking about this, to be honest, because I should know more about it. But yeah, basically I, I did that this year and what happened is I did it a little bit late and one of my friends told me that it might be damaging to the trichome coverage on the plants. And what I wanted to do was spray the plants with the lactobacillus again because it's a great preventative for caterpillars and also powdery mildew. So it has so many good uses. Like the two main problems that you deal with outdoors are caterpillars and powdery mildew. So when I had a batch made up and I was starting to see resin on my plants and I was a little bit worried about actually spraying anything on them at this point, what I decided to do was feed the plants 
the lactobacillus because I figured, you know what? Roots is fruits and the plant takes everything up from the root zone. So if there's some kind of beneficial element to the lactobacillus that goes onto the plants when sprayed, perhaps rather than waste what I'd made, I could feed it to the plants. And I don't know whether it had an effect, but I know that I didn't have any powdery mildew this year. And it's the first year that I have not had a single spot on any plants. It blew my mind. I know it's a combination of the genetics because I went out of my way to get the, the Filipino hybrids. So the true love, the blood lemons, these ones are excellent for resistance. Also the sticky Nikki seem to have an amazing resistance for such a quick, heavy, dense flower. So yeah, I was super happy with that. And the lactobacillus. Going forward, I'm going to speak to someone more knowledgeable than me about the benefits of actually feeding it to the root zone of the plants. But until someone tells me it's not a good thing to do, going forward, I will definitely be using that trick in the future, as well as spraying the plants in veg with it. And the first week of flower, I will also be feeding it again, maybe two or three times later on in flower because this time I made a point of uh, giving it some and it seemed to give me good results. Like I said, there's a lot of factors involved and I'm sure there's no single reason why I didn't get powdery mildew. It's more just learning all of the factors that cause the issue and then trying to do as much as you can to combat all of them. Another one of the things is defoliation. Defoliation is essential outdoors, but not on the level that you would indoors. What I try and do is if there are big fan leaves that are really like pressing against bud sites or sitting on top of one another too much and causing a lot of moisture, that's a red flag for me. So I will defoliate sparingly throughout veg and flower if I see plants that are looking a little bit... uh, too leafy so it's something that i do but i don't go crazy like on the indoors indoors i find it essential to defoliate a lot more heavily than outdoors but outdoors is definitely essential and even more so when it starts to get into late flower you want to be careful of those big fan leaves that are sitting on bud sites and might cause bud rot and things like that or cause moisture that creates a little pocket for powdery mildew to kick off so definitely do some defoliation and really it's just about learning with what genetics you're working with and how they respond because some plants don't have a lot of leaf on them and to be honest the the low leaf to bud ratio plants are the ones that i prefer and that's what i try and grow when i'm growing outdoors because at the end of the day we want buds not leaf so definitely something to consider when it comes to the genetic choice for your outdoor plants when it comes to training plants I have some mixed feelings because I've had some very, very different results and different experiences. One of the things that I, I'm obsessed with topping plants. I love the structure and the results that you get from plants that have been topped. But when it comes to growing outdoors, there's the factor of the elements. So the wind and rain can play a massive factor. And this is where I learned how beautiful the evolution of a cannabis plant is 
and why sometimes topping is not the thing to do. When you grow a plant and you top it, what you then end up giving is that kind of U-shape which splits off and gives two tops instead of one. The minute you do that, there's a point for the plant to split. So if there's too much weight on the buds or rain or wind, it can easily split the plant and you'll be heartbroken to find that happen. So if you do top plants, you need to support and build like little cages around them and have things that are going to hold them up and stop things like that from happening. You really have to be aware of the the elements. This year, I was kind of a victim of my own success in the sense it was one of the first times I've been properly organized and got plants out that were nice, sturdy little seedlings at the right time of the season when it was the perfect time to start. But what ended up happening is that I had plants that were so big and so healthy in veg that out of nowhere, we were hit with the most bizarre wind and rainstorm that literally bent over half of the plants to the point where I thought I was going to lose half of my crop before it even begun to flower. I was in such a panic. If anyone was on my Instagram at the time, they would have seen the devastation and seen the upset from me. Uh, My God, it was traumatic. I didn't even want to take photos of it and send it because I was just so disturbed and so like shocked. And I just thought to myself, fuck, I need to do something here. What am I going to do? And luckily I've got the most incredible neighbors and my next door neighbors who are probably in their seventies saw that I was having some issues. And I asked him if I could borrow a mallet to try and bang in some thick poles that I had to try and prop up the plants. And they ever so kindly offered to lend me uh, some like eight foot cast iron plant stakes that they use to make like stands for their tomato vines to grow up and other vegetables. I couldn't believe the generosity and the kindness of them. It was so beautiful for them to do this. They've been the most wonderful neighbors to me since I've come here. And I'm always a little bit sheepish about having my plants growing, but they appreciate that I'm a farmer and I've got vegetables and that I love what I'm doing and I get a joy out of it. And they're always super complimentary to me and super generous. They give me lots of their peaches from their trees and lots of their fruits and vegetables. So yeah, it's been a, been a pleasure to have such wonderful people. And they really did say things because I was able to prop all the plants up, bang in the cast iron stakes and support all of the plants. And now I've learned my lesson going forward. I won't ever have plants outside that haven't got stakes in them to support them. And I'm going to be looking into investing in a bunch of my own cast iron stakes for plants because yeah, the ones that they've got are just incredible. Once you bang those into the ground, nothing's blowing them over. They are solid. They're a challenge to get out at the end. So those really did save my crop this year. And I'm very thankful to my neighbors for being such kind hearted and understanding people, even though my Spanish is horrendous and their English isn't much better. We managed to communicate and they were able to offer me help. So yeah, I was uh, very grateful for that and very grateful to have such wonderful neighbors.
So yeah, overall, my, my advice to people would be if you've got a lot of uh, weather conditions that you're going to be dealing with, definitely don't top your plants. Let the natural structure of the plant grow because it's much more resistant to wind and rain. And there's a reason why plants have that kind of candelabra shape where it's one bud at the top and then comes out. And when it rains on plants that are shaped like that, the rain washes off and comes away from the plant very easily. When you've topped a plant and there's multiple tops and it rains on that plant, the buds get a lot more wet and the plant takes on the rain a lot worse and it bends the plant over in all directions. After a rainstorm, you can come out and find plants looking pretty ravaged if they're topped plants. Even some of the untopped ones can get quite a bend after a little rainstorm, but generally they're much more resistant and they perk up a lot quicker. So definitely think about supports for your plants if you're going to top them. And uh, if you're growing from cutting and you're going to top plants, make sure that you've got a nicer bunch of stakes and things like that to help keep them up. One of the worst things you ever have to deal with as a grower, indoor or outdoor, but I think you have to be much more aware of it outdoor, is rippers, thieves, people who want to steal your crop. Anyone who's grown outdoors will know that the smell does travel. So that can often get the attention of the wrong people. And sometimes it will cause rippers to start looking. So before you ever start, make sure that you're doing it somewhere safe, somewhere where people can't see, where people aren't looking down at it, where it's not going to be easily spotted by anyone going past. And then the only issue that you've got is the smell, which will get people's attention. And depending on where you're growing and what the lifestyle and the area is like is going to make a big difference to what you can get away with. So yeah, you have to be aware of rippers. You have to be in a place where you know what the situation is. You know who's around you. I have dealt with rippers before. Sadly, I had a, a crop taken many, many years ago. Uh, the people put pressure on one of my next door neighbors to let them go through their house, through their garden, into my garden, take a bunch of plants and then go back through their garden and steal them. So as you can imagine, I was furious, heartbroken, upset and very disappointed. My neighbors were very sheepish after that and very embarrassed and almost wouldn't give me any eye contact where they were so embarrassed. And what had initially happened is they had actually seen some people near the house and given me a heads up and said to me, look, we see some people, they're not good people. We're worried that they're going to try and rob your plants. And they tried to give me a heads up, but the look of fear in their eyes was quite shocking to me. They seemed terrified of whoever it was and the situation. And for me, it's, it's not something to be that terrified by. So I was a little like concerned, but what it became apparent is that my neighbors were f afraid of these people. And then what ended up happening is these people put pressure on the husband of my, of my neighbors. Uh, and they allowed them at like two or three o'clock in the morning, uh, to go through their garden into mine and rob my plants. So that was heartbreaking. I had already been going out of my way 
to make sure that no one ever left my house. I had a friend stand at the time and we were making sure that someone was here 24 hours a day. And the sad thing was that he heard a car that night and he heard the neighbor's dogs go, but because it was the next door neighbor's house, he didn't think nothing of it, which is understandable. If it had been our gate, it would have been action stations. But when you hear the neighbor's dogs go and you hear a car, you just presume that it's the neighbor's. The last thing you think is that the neighbors are allowing someone to go through their garden into yours to rob you. So that was upsetting. Luckily, the plants were so big that they probably couldn't steal more than what they did because it would have never fitted in the car. To be honest, I think they must have had two cars just for the like, I think it was maybe, I can't remember if it was four or six plants that they took, but they were big plants. So it would have been a struggle. And yeah, it was just super disappointing. And to, to the, the saddest part of all is that my next door neighbors are growers too. So they understand what it's like to be a grower. So you could see for pretty much a whole year, they were super embarrassed and were barely giving me any eye contact. There was a massive change in the way they were with me before and after the, the rippers took my plants. So what I did, this is a bit of a fucking funny story. Uh, wasn't funny for them but I was sure fucking laughing. Uh, what I decided to do was the very next year, I decided I wouldn't go to quite the same effort because of the problems. Instead, I done a little seed project outside. So what I'd done is I made seeds. And then, strangely enough, my neighbors all of a sudden had a desire to talk to me again. And they rang my doorbell and wanted to ask me if I had a male plant outside because their outdoor plants somehow had seeds in them. So I told them, <laughs> funny how you didn't want to talk for the last year, but now you want to talk to me. You didn't want to talk when my plants got stolen. And the look on their face, the, the way their face dropped was incredible. And then they kind of basically explained to me what had happened. And I told them, well, this year I've seeded everything. So now it's worthless to everyone except for me. So tell your friends, if they want to come and try and take some seeded plants, I'll be waiting for them this time. And then maybe next year, if people behave, I won't seed everything. So that year, no problems. And every year since, no problems. So a valuable lesson was learned by everyone that year. And a lot of seeds were made. Some warranted, some wanted, some unwanted. So... A bit of a, a bit of a cunty move, to be honest. I ain't going to lie, but all my shit got stolen. So what do they expect from me? Of course, I'm going to do something like that. I'm not just going to sit there and fucking take it. I had to think of something. I didn't want to go fucking nuts and start kicking people's doors off and going like a lunatic over my plants being stolen. So I thought, you know what? If you guys want to give me the cold shoulder and act like we're strangers all of a sudden because your friends or fucking people, whoever it was, stole my plants, then this year we'll be pollinating everyone's plants. And that was exactly what happened. And I told them, now I've pollinated all my plants, I'll cut down the mail and hopefully yours won't be pollinated so bad. And I'm not sure how well their crop went that year, but I know for sure that I had some beautiful organic seeds and they came out incredible. Some of the best seeds I've ever grown. Another testament to sun-grown and organic-grown seeds because 
Yeah, I, I was literally amazed at the, the thickness, the size, the nice, beautiful tiger stripes, outdoor seeds grown organically with the sun really do produce amazing quality. One of the things that people asked me to comment on was how regular to feed the plants teas. And this is one of the things that I got to be honest, I'm not confident to give advice on, if I'm honest. What I've been doing personally is I've been basing it on how the plants look. So for me, I was making up teas of the Dragonfly Earth Medicine soil amendments. And what I was doing is I was feeding the teas once a week but I only added worm castings on, I think, four of the weeks. So I think it was like two weeks of the veg and then maybe two or three weeks of the flowering when I noticed things looking a little bit, starting to lighten up a little bit, like the foliage on the plants was a little bit yellowing, not even yellowing, but just not that same healthy green that they should be. Those were the points when I took it as a sign to make up a tea with some worm castings in and the results were great. Like once I hit them with a tea within a week, they were back looking a little bit darker, a little bit healthier and they were thriving. So for me, I don't like to overfeed. I'm, I'm, su I'm always worried about overfeeding. I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on soil, on outdoor growing. So I prefer to edge on the side of caution when it comes to feeding so that when it comes to harvesting, there's very little chance that the plants are going to be overfed. And when it comes to the actual final results, one of the things that I've noticed as well is, I don't know why it is, but a flower that doesn't burn quite as bright white as an indoor, you know, like outdoor bud that's like, let's, let's call it gray ash, smokes incredible but if that same gray ash was an indoor nutrient salt grown plant it wouldn't have that same enjoyable factor so yeah there are certain things that you i have come to realize that white ash doesn't tell the full tale of a plant when it comes to organics and soil and as long as you've got a nice clean ash it's not black ash. It's not hard ash. You can tell if something's enjoyable to smoke. If it's smooth, if you can take big tokes, there's no harshness, no tingle on the throat, all of these things, then you're on to a winner. Really, it's all about how much you enjoy to smoke it. It's nice to have white ash and white ash is always incredible smoking and the whiter ash is generally the better smoking. And if I've got two outdoor plants and one's white ash and one's gray, the white ash one generally does taste better. But that's not to say that some of the grayer ash plants don't smoke incredible and aren't thoroughly enjoyable. And I'll be honest, I've been a white ash snob for so long that that was something that I had to accept and come to terms with as an outdoor grower because I would turn my nose up at things that weren't burning white and like super white ash. And I would always think that the white ash was going to be the best, but I recently had some indoor that was super white ash uh, and grown with cocoa. And I had some outdoor that was organic saw grown that was a grayer ash, but still very soft ash. And that smoked infinitely better than the indoors. So 
that's definitely something to consider. Uh, I use a Dragonfly Earth Medicine products, like I was telling you all. If you check out their website, check out their Instagram, you can find out all about those. And like I said, simple teas, a little air stone uh, with a little pump, make up the tea the day before, put it all in a big bucket, like a big 100 litre container or whatever size that you need. And then by the time you come back the next day, there's a nice healthy froth on it and it smells incredible use it all. Don't let it sit. If you let that sit for too long, the smell goes horrible and it's not nice. And I don't know if it's good to use on the plants, but I wouldn't advise it. For me, it's all about that 24 hour, 12 hour, like that little brew, get it with it. It's got a nice foam on the top and then get that fed to the plants and the dragonfly earth medicine lineup, the soil amendments that they have and the teas that you can make from those are just incredible. Absolutely incredible. I can't recommend them highly enough. There's a reason why they're one of the best companies in the world, why they've got one of the highest reputations in the grow industry and why they are such wonderful people. So check them out, look into that and you can learn more from them than you're ever going to learn from me. So cut out the middleman if you really want to learn about the DEM certified and how to become like Dragonfly Earth Medicine, self-sufficient and put your own products together so that you're growing all of the amendments for your soil yourself. Because my God, what an achievement that is. I've got so much love and respect for anyone that gets to that stage where they're dealing with all of their own amendments and growing everything and sourcing everything themselves and fully self-sufficient or as close to self-sufficient as modern life will allow you to get because there are some uh, some things that will hold you back but in general the dragonfly earth medicine people can put you on the path to full self-sufficiency one of the last subjects to cover when it comes to growing outdoors i guess is the harvesting not only when to harvest but how to harvest because there can be a lot of differences to how you do it indoors as far as when to harvest it's important to know the windows for the genetics that you're growing to give you an idea in advance of when they're going to be ready so that you can plan and have things ready to come down when you want them to. What I found is that it helps to have things that flower at different times so that you're not overwhelmed with a complete harvest all due at one time. So if you can stagger your harvest and have things come down over the space of a month then you get a lot more time to harvest things at your own pace and to do everything properly and not put yourself under too much pressure. So with myself, like I said earlier, I went with some early finishing plants that are kind of finished. The quickest ones are finished mid-September, kind of just after mid-September and uh, are all kind of done by the end of September. And then the other ones are finished at the end of October. So that way there's kind of a window on a lot of them. So I was kind of harvesting the first ones a couple of weeks before the end of September. And then I was harvesting plants all the way until the end of October, just taking them as and when they seemed ready based on the genetics, the phenotype, based on how the weather was going, there was times when a couple of plants that had much bigger buds, a couple of the blood lemons, 
and the true love. When it started to get rainy, I decided to make an executive decision and chop a couple of those earlier than they necessarily needed it. They were perfectly fine when they came down, but if the weather had been better, I would have liked to have pushed them a little bit further to give them a bit more punch and the potency, but they still produced beautiful flowers. Turned out to be some of the best flower rosin I've ever, ever pressed incredible turp profile so unique and the effect from the true love and the blood lemons is just sublime such a beautiful calming dreamy yeah kind of a little bit trippy but very calming very relaxing very soothing very much a daydream kind of smoke has has a beautiful effect and the true love has been my favorite smoke as far as flower I've been smoking True Love Flower nonstop since it came down. I love it for breakfast. I love it anytime, but breakfast especially because it just sets you up so well for the day. It's got a real good feel-good factor. I smoke cannabis to feel better to, for the for the feel-good factor, for the wellness factor, for the pain relief as well. I have a lot of shoulder problems and a lot of neck and back issues and distrain manages to give me some soothing feeling but without comatose in me so i've got that kind of daydream vibe where i'm super proactive and i'm creative and i'm getting things done and i'm enjoying everything that i'm doing because i'm baked but i'm not feeling lethargic and sleepy and i've got pain relief qualities there as well so yeah i really enjoy the true love it's one of my favorites of all time and the blood lemons that one is just so lemony that I ended up pressing most of it for rosin because it makes the most insane flower rosin. It's like dabbing straight turps or like gargling lemon mouthwash or something like that. It's just so incredible. And a couple of the more Filipino leaning finos are really unique as well. The lemon comes through in all of them, but it's in varying degrees. And when you smoke the true love and the blood lemons, you can notice the similarity from the Filipino side. So you become more familiar with what element comes from the Filipino and what's being put in from the truth and the grape lemonade, which are the other sides of those two crosses another big tip for harvesting outdoors is to make sure that you take off as much leaf as possible because the truth of it is no matter how good your ipm and your pest management overall is outside there's still going to be a lot of bugs and spider mites frips and every other kind of bug on your plant so if you have the time and you're able, I really recommend doing a heavy defoliation just before you harvest. Obviously, get rid of all the fan leaves and everything that's uh, not got any resin on it. Throw those all away or use them as compost. Do whatever you want to do with those. And then start taking off the leaf, the bigger leaf that's got resin on it. Get yourself some gloves, get yourself some scissors gently take off as much of that as you can and get the plant stripped as much as you can before you take it indoors because you're risking bringing bugs into your house. So unless you have somewhere specific to dry them, it helps to get as many of the bugs off as possible. And what I then done is I set up a tent frame in another room that's away from all my indoor gardens and I hung the plants on the tent frame so that it can uh, 
dry all the plants off. And then when necessary, I can take that temp frame back into the grow room after it's been sterilized and washed down. And it can go back to holding the light in the grow room, which is its previous use. One of the factors to be aware of is that if you are harvesting for extracts, harvesting a little bit on the earlier side compared to what you would do indoors when growing outdoors is advisable because it gives a better color product with a little bit of a better turp profile than sometimes if they've gone the full term and been pushed to the end and gone through a little bit of uh, their extra flowering time with the outdoors for whatever reason it just makes for a darker oil and sadly a lot of people buy with their eyes these days so sometimes edge on the the earlier side of harvesting when you're making that decision if you are making an oil or some kind of extract that is going to be for public consumption because like I say, people buy with their eyes a lot these days. So a slightly lighter product is often what people are searching for. If you've got a more educated consumer and you don't mind a little bit of a darker product to get that extra potency that comes with a longer flowering plant. So it's really about weighing up the pros and cons and just learning from your own experience, really seeing what it produces, seeing what the differences are and making a decision about what you prefer yourself. Some people don't want that heavy narcotic hit that dabs can give you when you flowered the plants longer. So a lot of people are happier to harvest a little bit earlier and get a little less of a hit, but have a nicer color and sometimes a more complex flavor because a lot of those monoterpenes kind of seem to go after a longer flower so yeah definitely consider harvest times but like i say it's something that's a lot of trial and error so you just got to kind of figure it out for yourself and after a few crops you'll work it out and that's the biggest issue with outdoor growing is you can only learn so much so fast because we only get one season per year minus any light deprivation that is and with that one season you've got to implement those lessons and then put them into the next year. It's not like indoor growing where you can get three or four crops a year. You can have different crops in different rooms. You can be learning constantly and you can be building experience at a lot more of a rapid rate when it comes to outdoor growing. One crop a year, one season a year, there's only one sun, there's only one garden, do you know what I mean? So there's only so much that you can get done and then you've got to wait until that time comes around the next year and then it all starts again. So get a notebook, make notes, make a lot of notes on all the different factors and theories, have some theories, have like a little uh, hypothesis. Like if I do this and I plant this in this pot and I plant this in a larger pot and I water this much, this one will have a better flush because less soil, you know, make up a few different tricks and tips and things to do and trials and different ideas that you can test in your garden and learn from experience because there's nothing more beneficial than seeing it with your own eyes and figuring it out for yourself. And because you're doing it outdoors, you'll be surprised how much you can get from one year to another. So it helps to have a notebook with 
little notes to remind you of things to avoid, things to do, things to experiment with, and other factors like that. So I advise everyone to have their own little outdoor notebook, indoor notebook. I'm a big fan of notebooks in general as a grower to take notes on individual plants, to take overall notes, to take notes on environmental factors, have one for bugs and things like that so that you can keep notes on bugs and what's efficient for what pest and problem. A few little notebooks or folders on a computer to divide all these things up to and to keep you on track because you might go through an issue that you forget about because you haven't had that issue for a couple of years and then all of a sudden you're faced with them again and you can't remember what exactly it was that you did. So it's a good idea to keep all these things documented. Back in the day, we'd have everything documented on forums like ICMAG, but nowadays people don't seem so active on the forums, sadly. So the information isn't stored there and people quickly forget. So definitely, I'm a fan of notebooks. Get yourself an IPM notebook, an environment notebook, a genetics notebook, keep keep notes on all the different things that you learn and it will uh, go a long way to improving and you'll see steady improvements each year, hopefully, if you implement those lessons. I think that pretty much covers everything that I wanted to for today. I've gone over most things that I wanted to. I'm sure there's a few little bits and pieces that can be added, but like I said, this is just a part one. I'd love to hear some feedback from you if there's anything that I didn't touch on. If there's any other factors that you want me to discuss further going forward, let me know. I intend on getting a few different growers on for episodes about outdoor growing, including Forbidden Flowers BCN, a good friend of mine who's an excellent organic grower, does some wonderful work indoors and out, does some incredible ferments breeds his own nematodes and does a bunch of other incredible things like that. So I'm definitely going to get him on at some point. Also, Trichome Jungle Seeds. I want to get him on to talk about his jungle jungle microbes. He's got a new little uh, microbial solution that he's working with. I'm super curious to get my hands on that and have a little play with it. So I'll be getting him on soon to talk about that. And also his experience growing outdoors because he is someone that has a lot more experience growing outdoors than me and does some incredible work. I would also love some suggestions for some growers from America. If you've got any that you follow or you are one yourself with experience growing outdoors, please drop me a message. I would love to get you on to speak about growing outdoors and the different trials and tribulations that you're facing with doing that in a legal market in America. So please, suggestions, much appreciated. And if you are one of those growers, definitely do get in touch with me. Thank you for listening, guys. It's been a pleasure as always. I have had quite a lot of issues with my sound recording equipment prior to this episode. So that's why it took me a little longer than I was hoping to put it out. Let me know what the sound is like if you've noticed a drop-off My equipment seems to have done some upgrades and seems to be giving me some issues. So I can't actually hear myself back in the headphones anymore. I'm going to try and resolve it. But like I say, 
please do let me know how the sound is and if there's been much of a drop off in quality if it's unbearable or if it's just the same thank you for your time thank you for all your kind words and support it means the world to me give me a shout with any suggestions for future episodes or subjects and i look forward to hearing from you all take care peace and love from me coco and casey <laughs>